Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you uh, watching this morning. I used to watch or occasionally watch people do uh, live things, and uh, as someone would pop on, they would say hi to them, and I always thought that was kind of dorky, but I'm going to join the club. So so just to, to say hi to a couple people, uh, Parker Payton uh, is watching this morning, the Johnsons, Gilmores, Jackie Payton, my friend Holly, a couple different Jasper families, Dana. I have a cousin in Illinois, Lana, who's watching, is long with my, uh, well, they're not together, my son Joel in Springfield and my niece Melanie in Chicagoland. So, so thank you all for uh, joining us today and watching along and a few other people besides just those. So when I was a kid, I loved watching the Olympics. In fact, the first, first Olympics that I, that, that I actually remember was the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, I, I remember watching Dick Fosbury, uh, win the, the high jump with his Fosbury flop. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, you just made that up. Uh, Google it. Uh, it is a real thing. In fact, he changed the world of high jumping with the Fosbury Flop. He won the gold medal. Bob Beeman won the long jump that year. And I remember all the, the uproar over a couple guys, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who did this. I'll let you guys Google 68 Olympics, and you'll be able to figure out exactly what that, that meant. And then I remember the 72 Olympics that were held in, I believe it was in Munich, they're really remembered for the terrorist attack. The, the Palestinian group, Black September, uh, kidnapped uh, and took captive some of the uh, team from, from Israel, and that ended very badly. It was just a sad thing. But, but also remember that was the year that the gold medal was stolen from the U.S. basketball team by those, uh, those uh, evil Russians. Um, Frank Shorter won the gold medal that year in the marathon. Kind of an ironic, uh, ironic name for a marathon runner, Frank Shorter. Uh, uh, and Mark Spitz won seven gold medals that year. And in 1976, the 76 games saw Bruce Jenner win the decathlon. I can say a lot of things, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide on the air of caution and not make any comments about that at all. Uh, basketball came back and won the gold medal again. And then I remember watching the boxing matches. Sugar Ray Leonard and brothers Michael and Leon Spinks, who were from St. Louis, all won gold medals in boxing. And of course, of course, you all remember Edmund Coffin. Edmund Coffin won two gold medals, an individual and a team medal, in the uh, 76 uh, Olympics. Uh, some of you wives ask your husband if they remember Edmund Coffin. And if they say they do, they're lying to you. Because he won two medals in the equestrian events. Uh, but I loved I loved watching the Olympics in part because I'm old and back in 70, uh, uh, in 72, 68, 72, 76, those years, there wasn't much on TV, particularly there wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of sports on TV. So when the Olympics came on, there was wall to wall Olympic coverage. And, and so I loved to watch Olympics. Even, even sports that were boring, I watched. And one of those sports that, that to me was boring, in fact, I don't think I've watched it since the 76 Olympics was weightlifting. And, and I remember watching the weightlifting, particularly I loved watching or at least endured watching the heavyweights because the, the heavyweight guys would come out to, to do their lifting and they, they were massive guys and they'd have on these little, the, these little leotard type outfits that made them look foolish and they would come out and, and they'd put chalk on their hands and then they'd slap it against their chest so they'd be covered in chalk and they would, would come out to do this this lift called the clean and jerk. And, and so guys, if you, if you didn't know who Edmund 
coffin was. Some of you guys, some of you husbands, if you're old like me, uh, might be able to answer this and impress your family. So, so the heavy, at least in the heavyweight division, there's one country that always won. In fact, they won in 68, 72, uh, 76, and 80. In 84, they didn't because their, their country uh, boycotted the Olympics. I'll give you a chance to, to impress your families. Yes, you are correct. It was the Russians. And I remember those Russian heavyweights coming out to, to lift the weight, and they looked so angry. Now, now, maybe it's because they had to wear those leotard things that made them so upset, but they came out, and they would pick up the weight. And we're talking hundreds of hundreds of pounds on the bar. In fact, as they started to lift it, the bar would bend. And, and they would take that weight in, in the clean and jerk motion. The clean would be to pull it up to, to get right here, and then they would step back and push the weight up ahead of, uh, over their head and then hold it there. Now, I don't know. I guess I should have looked this up to get the, the exact answer, but, but the, you, you had to hold the weight over your head for a certain period of time. I don't know if a light went off, someone nodded, a, a horn blew. I don't know what it was, but you held it for that, that, that amount of time, and then it was a clean lift. Now, now, I want you to keep that image in your mind, a Russian weightlift. If you want to if you want to Google Russian weightlifters, if you want to kind of have your kids draw pictures of weightlifters, feel free to do that during the sermon. But keep that m- image in mind of a weightlifter with weight pressed above his, his head as we go through. We'll come back to that just a little bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 7, that's where we are today uh, for the third week in a row. I apologize. We, we actually are going to finish the, our 1 Corinthians 13 series next week on Easter Sunday. But 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says this, uh, love always protects, always trusts. We've talked about those. And, and then the last two, always hopes and always perseveres. One thing I love about Scripture is that it's always, it's always so pertinent to our lives. We, we come to Scripture and it speaks to where our needs directly are. And today, we're going to look at this idea that love, it's all about love. Love hopes, love hopes and hangs on. So we'll finish uh, verse 7 today, by looking at those last two descriptors, love hopes and love perseveres. Now let me pause as we get started here and just kind of throw out a reminder uh, that with everything we've talked about in this series, and, and in fact moving forward, every time you open up the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, every time we open that up, we, we need to realize there's a dual application of the descriptors and the concepts of agape love. We should look at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, through two different lenses or from two different angles. So, so here's the first lens, or here's the first angle that we should always apply 1 Corinthians 13. First of all, we see it this way, that Paul here in, in this chapter is talking to us. In fact, if you want to know what the main thing that Paul wants us to get here, the, the main point of his teaching, if you want to know what he wants us to have, practice, and put into our lives with agape love, it's the fact that he's talking to us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I'll, have you, uh, I'll have you go there, and then if you want to kind of uh, find another scripture, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 7, kind of stick your finger there or put a bookmark and hold those because we'll look at that. But, but today, as we start out, go back to the very start of the chapter, and you're going you're gonna to get this idea that, that, uh, that Paul is telling us that it's about us, that it applies to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just the first three verses. Paul says there, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give uh, all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Did you... uh, did you notice the word that kind of popped out in those three verses? It's a word that Paul, that Paul used eight different times in those three verses. He said eight different times the word I. Now, now normally, I, I would say it's not a good thing. We would look at that and say, boy, if someone's talk, using I that many times in, in three verses, that's not a good thing. But Paul here isn't really saying I in the sense I, Paul, what he really means there, what he's really saying is us, or or he's saying we. So Paul is focusing, uh, what he's focusing on here, what, what he's telling us that we need to hear moving forward, what we need to hear next, is is applying to us. So church, don't miss this. The first application, uh, possibly the most important application, uh, it, it may be one we don't want to hear. It may, maybe we don't like this, but Paul is talking to us. I know this chapter, we kind of like it more in, in, in a more of a philosophical, uh, beautifully poetic, uh, wedding setting kind of way. But actually, Paul is talking in a deep, theological, hardcore, practical, live like Jesus kind of way. So our starting point our starting point is always in this chapter through the lens of how does it apply to me? How, how can I live it? But there's a second equally important way to see this passage. And kind of interestingly, it, it's somewhat circular. It's a somewhat circular argument here because the best way that we can figure out what it means for us to live agape love and have agape love, the best, best way that we can find information on how to put it into our lives the one thing that informs us personally about what agape love really looks like is the second lens of application, and, and, and it's this. Paul is talking about God. So each description in chapter 13 of, of, about God's love is really describing God and describing uh, his son Jesus. And so the best example for our lives is to see how God demonstrates that agape love. So, so as we apply it to ourselves, we take these and say, hey, that's what I need to put in my life when he's talking to us. The way we figure out what that really looks like and means is by seeing it as an attribute of God. So 1 Corinthians 13 is both a challenge to us, pushing and spurring us on to Christ's likeness, while at the same time, it's also an encouragement to us, uh, reminding us of just how deeply and perfectly God loves us. So, so let's see how these uh, how we can apply these two concepts or this idea to these two concepts we see here at the end of verse 7. Uh, and kind of like last week, we're, we're really going to talk just about this first point. When we get to the second one, uh, love always perseveres. We're basically at the end of the sermon. So here's the first one. Uh, he says that it always hopes. C- catch this. There is the promise of hope. And as we see it through the lens of how God loves us, if we see that idea of, of love always hopes through the idea of it demonstrating God to us, here is the promise. We can have it. We can have hope. No matter what we're facing, no matter what 
comes our way, no matter how uncertain our future or our present is, no matter what the challenges we are enduring, we can have hope. Now, if you didn't before, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5. We're, we're really just going to look at one verse, read one verse, but you can, if you want to, read uh, the, the entire chapter to kind of get the background. We're going to read just verse 41 here in a second. But let me give you, let me give you the context. The apostles had been preaching about Jesus and doing some amazing stuff. They were healing people. Every time they went to the temple courts, people were bringing people to them. And, and converts left and right, the, the city was on fire because of the teaching of the apostles. And, and we're told in chapter 5 that the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, it says they got jealous. They, they got upset. Isn't that, isn't that how the world sometimes works? Uh, but they got upset, so they, they arrested the twelve, they threw them in jail, and during the night, uh, an angel came, opened the jail cells, took the apostles out, told them to go to the temple courts and preach more fully the gospel of Jesus. So go back to what you were doing in the temple courts. The next morning, the Sanhedrin sent for the apostles, and the jailers came back and said, <laughs> and, and you can just imagine their fear, we, we went down, the doors were locked, but they were gone. And right as they're trying to figure out what's going on, some guy comes running in and said, hey, hey, those guys you threw in jail last night, they're back in the temple, and they're back preaching again. So, so what they did, the, the, the Sanhedrin said, we're going to try this one more time. They arrested them a second time, and, and then they said, you know, we're going to get serious. They flogged them, which is not some little love tap. They, they beat them, and then they gave them a cease and desist order. They basically said, Whatever you do, do not preach about Jesus anymore. You guys nip it in the bud, stop it, don't want to hear any more about this Jesus. So Acts 5.41, notice what it says there. It says the apostles, and they decided to let them go. They decided, well, jails won't hold them, so they let them go. 41 says the apostles left the Sanhedrin. Now what does it say there? They left the Sanhedrin fearing for their lives? No, if you've got your Bibles open, it doesn't say that, does it? They left the Sanhedrin scared about what to do next. No, that's not what it says. They, they left the Sanhedrin ready to throw in the towel and give up. Nope. They left the Sanhedrin feeling defeated and abandoned. That's not what it says. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now catch this. They laughed. They left, and their future, their, their present, their future was unknown. They left not knowing if they would be arrested again, not knowing if they would be beaten again, not knowing if they would be jailed again, not knowing who knows what else might happen. But they left with hope. They knew Jesus, and they left excited thrilled, rejoicing, high-fiving one another. We were worthy to suffer for Jesus. And quite honestly, what they were saying is, we're going right back to preach about him. They left with hope. Acts chapter 7, actually chapter 6 and 7, tells the story of a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a, uh, and kind of our church, uh, our church year is getting kind of messed up with this uh, uh, shelter-in-place stuff. So uh, right now we should be uh, nominating uh, uh, men and women to serve in leadership, and and one of those roles is deacon, uh, and and so it'll it'll happen. It'll just be a little bit delayed, I guess. But uh, 
But, but if someone knocks on your door, gives you a call from the church, says, hey, we're considering uh, nominating you to be a deacon, I want you to remember the story of Stephen because Stephen was a deacon. He, in fact, he was one of the first uh, deacons of the church. His job was to take care of, uh, of widows and, and make sure the food was distributed uh, fairly and, and equally so the apostles could be about preaching and praying and, and teaching and all that kind of stuff. So Stephen was a, uh, uh, a man, Scripture says, that was full of grace and the Holy Spirit. And he was out himself preaching about Jesus. In fact, he, he was arguing with some guys, and they couldn't stand up to him because he had such wisdom. And so they got ticked off. They made up a lie about him, and Stephen got arrested. The guys, the Sanhedrin, same group, arrested him and said, hey, is this true? And Stephen, in chapter 6 and 7, begins to preach them a sermon. And it's really a history lesson. He starts from, from the beginning of Jewish history and, and goes all the way up to the time of Jesus, basically saying all of this history has been pointing to Jesus. And at the end of what he says, he basically says, you, you guys, uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised hearts. He, he didn't mince words. He basically said, you killed this Jesus. And we, we see in Acts chapter 7, starting verse 54, that they didn't like that when he said that. Verse 54 says this, when they heard this, they were furious. Now catch this. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Anyone, uh, anyone know what gnashing your teeth at someone? I, I don't know if they growled, if they ground their teeth at it. I have no idea what that means. But they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is what he says. Look, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, that made them even matter. They, uh, it, it, scripture says they covered their ears. Uh, how immature. They covered their ears and started screaming. Ah! They didn't want to hear that. And they got ticked off and they took Stephen. They drug him outside the, the walls of the city and began to stone him. Look at verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. So, so right now, and we think we got things hard, man. We're, we're not able to do what we want. We're, uh, we're sheltering in place, and, and some things are uncertain. We, Stephen's getting stoned. Uh, I mean, he, they're throwing rocks at him with the intent, uh, and they're going to succeed to kill him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, or he died. Stephen was literally in the act of dying. And what did he do? Did he recant his story? No. Did he change his mind? No. Did he cry out in fear? Oh, what am I going to do? No. Did, did he show regret? No. He had hope. The apostles didn't know what their future held, but they had hope. Stephen was dying, but he had hope. See, the promise of hope is, is this. We can have it. We can have hope. And, and, and here it is. We are never alone. Psalm 23, 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can say this one with me, you know it, I will feel, fear no evil, for you are with me. Sounds better if you say thou art with me, but in NIV, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, your cup me. Uh, Joshua 1, 5 says, uh, God speaking to to uh, Joshua. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. If Crystal, you're watching, you know this is your verse. So I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16 says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will, he will give you another counselor, which is the Holy Spirit, and he will give you another counselor, catch this, to be with you forever. Because God loves us, we have hope that we are never alone. When I was, uh, when I was little, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how old I was, probably, probably second, third, fourth grade, somewhere in there. One night my mom uh, asked me to go over to my aunt and uncle's house, Aunt Mary and Uncle Les, my dad's brother. They lived across the alley and about two houses down. And she asked me to go, go over to get something. I, I don't know if I was going to get some flour, sugar, uh, uh, laundry. I have no idea what I was going over to get. But she said, hey, Tim, will you run over there and get? But there was a problem. It was night. And I grew up in a small town, southern Illinois, Woodlawn. And we didn't have a whole lot of street lights, and But none of those street lights gave any illumination to the alley that was behind our house that I would have to walk down to get to my aunt and uncle's house. So, so, so I would have to go. And, and here's the real kicker. Here's the bad thing was. Okay, I should be back. There we go. So anyway, so I have to go out uh, of, of, of my back door to the alley, and there was this old, old barn uh, at the edge of the property behind us. Uh, now, now, it's not like we thought this barn was haunted, although there were stories about the fact that it could be. Uh, but, but, it, but, but when the wind blew, this old barn would creak and moan and make noises, and and, and it's not like there was anyone hiding in that old barn, although we had heard stories that, that kid kidnapping bad people would hide out in barns just like that, waiting for an opportunity to grab a kid. And, and, and so, so when I had to go to my aunt and uncle's, I'm like, I've got to walk by in the dark past that old creaking barn that may or may not hold a kid kidnapping uh, bad guy. So... So, so this is what I did. I went to my brother Rick and I said, I, I said, hey Rick, you, you want to go with me to Aunt Mary's? Now he must have saw the fear in my eyes because uh, he just looked up at me and, and kind of laughed. Uh, and I, I knew the laugh and I knew that was, uh, no, no, I'm not going to do it, you big weenie. Um, and so, so then I went to my sister Cindy, my next sister down. I said, Cindy, hey, you want to go over to Aunt uh, Mary and Uncle Les's with me? And and Cindy didn't want to leave, so she gave me one of these. And Cindy, if you're watching, I apologize for saying this, but, but Cindy gave me the, oh, my stomach hurts, because that's how she would get out of doing stuff, but she, her, her stomach hurts. So, so she said no. So I went and asked my twin sister, Mindy. Uh, it's kind of an unwritten rule that, uh, that a twin has to do what the other twin asks. Um, so, so I said, Mindy, you want to go with me? And so Mindy said, okay, okay. Here's the strangest thing, though. I had been afraid to go by myself, but but when I had someone with me, 
I didn't have fear. Now, I bet a lot of you could tell similar stories, maybe even as adults. But, but, but what was the difference? Could my twin sister, Mindy, who was smaller than me, could, could she have saved me from a kid kidnapping bad guy if one had been in that barn? Now, the reality is I could outrun her, so I guess technically that would have been an advantage to me, but, but there's nothing she could have done to help. Here's the point. I wasn't alone. Love always hopes. That's, that's our, our promise. One of the hopes that we can hold on to, that we can hang on to, is that we are never alone. And, and let, me, let me point out a second one here, the second promise of hope. We are never forgotten. God never gives up on us. He continues to have uh, hope in us and for us to come to him. He, we, we, we never, ever get to a place where God can't and won't welcome us back. In the Old Testament, we read about uh, David. We're very familiar with King David. and meant He was, he was an uh, interesting uh, man of God. In fact, Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. Uh, and, and in fact, in 1 Samuel 15, 37, this is the story of, uh, with him with Goliath. David says this, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of the Philistines. So David, David had an amazing faith, an unbelievable faith. And yet this same David turned his back so, so far on God and, and turned so far from him and, and fled from God so, so drastically that he committed adultery and murder. And yet God still pursued him. He sent his prophet Nathan to him. And then David in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, his, his psalm of contrition, his psalm of repentance to God says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. When, when our heart is broken for God, when we are contrite, then God will always welcome us back. And we know, of course, the New Testament story of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15, a son who basically said to his dad, I I wish you dead. That's what he was saying when he said, hey, give me my inheritance now. He basically was saying to his dad, I despise you. I wish you were dead. Give me my money. He did and left. And yet we know from that story that his father, the father never forgot the son. He stood possibly on the porch every night looking down the road, waiting to see that son return. And when he did, he welcomed him with open arms, put a ring on his finger, a, a coat, a, a, round, a robe around his shoulders, and threw a party for him. Welcome home, my son. A couple months ago, I was in uh, the Atchison McDonald's. I was standing uh, in line. I was on, on my way to, to, to Troy that morning. And uh, I often stop and get a Diet Coke at McDonald's. So I'm waiting, and there's a guy in front of me. And he kind of... I didn't know this at first, but then I kind of looked, and I thought, man, he looks kind of familiar. But this guy had, had, had some interesting tattoos on his head uh, and, and on the side of his face. And, and I thought he looked like someone I knew, but boy, when I knew him, he didn't have those. And, but he turned around, and, and I got a look at him, and it was who I thought it was. And I greeted him, and he turned around and said, hey, Tim. And, and we embraced 
this was pre-COVID-19 days, so we could do that. We embraced, and we began to talk. He placed his order. I got my Diet Coke, and, and, and while, while he's waiting for his order, I'm drinking my Diet Coke, which is great. That means I can refill it and get more for my, uh, my buck. And uh, so, so we're, we're talking, and he's telling me kind of about things going on in his life. And I asked him, I said, say, how are you doing? And he said, well, it's kind of a, going through a rough time. Uh, I'm going through divorce. And then he, he began to tell me uh, some other things that he was going through, some other things that happened to him and some other hardships that, that life had given him. And, and then he caught me off guard when he said this. Do you remember that time you came out to my house and we sat under the tree and talked? Now, the truth was I, I did. Now, I, I, I have a little different version than him. I remember sitting under the tree, and I talked, and he sat and glared at me. He sat with anger in his eyes, saying hardly a, a word. See, his story had some similarities to, to the, the story of our family. Uh, a couple of years before that, we had uh, had Crystal come into our home, and we adopted her. And, and it was about two years later, I think, that this guy came into a home of a church in our uh, family in our church, and they adopted him. And and like a lot of kids in that situation, Crystal went through this as well. They, they reach a point where they doubt, do, do you really love me? Am, am I really lovable? Can, can you say you love me, but do you really do it? And, 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 and Crystal dealt with that a little bit and struggled through that a little bit, but not nearly as bad as this guy did. He, man, he had a hard time, and he started to push back against their love and did everything he could to, to prove to, to, to himself that they didn't love him. And, and he, he was putting them through, through uh, apologize, he was putting them through hell. Uh, and it was right in the middle of this where he was full of anger that mom had asked if I'd come out and talk to him. And so we sat under the tree and I talked. And then he said this to me as we're standing there at McDonald's. He says, do you remember what you said to me? And I had to be honest. I, I, said, I said a lot of stuff. I, I, I I no, I don't remember in particular what you what I said, and and this is what he said. You told me that my family loved me, and you said that they would never stop loving me. And then he paused, and uh, and I watched as this tough guy, and he's a tough guy. Some of the stories he told me, he's a tough guy. I, I watched as tears began to to appear in the corners of his eyes. You could see his eyes start to water a little bit, and he quickly blinked them away like, no, I'm not going to cry. But he said this, I wonder how different my life would have turned out if only I'd believed that. And then he, he pointed to a couple tattoos on his face and the one on the back of his head, and he said, I probably wouldn't have these. And I said to him, you know what? You can still reach out to them. They still love you. But I could tell by the look in his eyes. In fact, I recognized the look in his eyes. I'd seen that 17 years earlier. The look in his eyes said, I just can't believe that they would love me. One of the hopes that we have, one of the promises that we have, is that we are not forgotten. We can have hope that God will always remember us that that that's our first thought i uh the the promises of hope 
is we can have it. And, and here's the second one. I'll, I'll move along quickly here. We, we can live it. And, and here's where it applies to us. We can, we can take hope and live it by seeing God in people. We can live it by seeing God in other people. Ron Meal, who's a, a pastor and author, tells the story of his mother. He says his mother is a, just a sweet, godly lady and just has a sweet spirit. And, and uh, he, he describes her this way. He says, whenever anyone does something, uh, something nice, for instance, like if she's walking into a store and someone steps in front of her and opens the door for her, or maybe she's driving uh, and someone uh, pauses and waves them in so she can get in the traffic, whatever it might be, or someone just is very, very polite and smiles and waves. She says, uh, Ron says, anytime anyone does anything especially nice or noteworthy, she will say, if, if he's with her, she'll say it to him. He said, I'm sure she says it to whoever she's with. And if she's by herself, she probably says it to herself. But as soon as they do that nice thing, she says, they must be a Christian. In, in essence, what, what he said about his mom is that she sees God in people. Okay, that's easy to do. That's easy to do with some people, isn't it? Let, let me give you some exa- examples. Jeannie McNamee. It's easy to see God in Jeannie McNamee. I love Jeannie. Those of you that have ever been around Jeannie when she prays, I, I mean, that's worth the price of a mission right there because you get goosebumps listening to her pray. I mean, she, uh, she has such a, a spirit when she prays. It, it's not hard for me to have hope for her and show hope to her because I can see God in her. It's easy for me to see God in Chad Winder. Man, I see God in Chad Winder. Chad has such a soft heart for people and a heart to connect people with God and, and with God's grace and forgiveness. I mean, Chad is just, just the sweetest guy. And it's not hard to have hope when it comes to Chad because it's easy to see God in him. It's easy to see God in people like uh, Craig and Robin Johnson. Man, they, they, they give so much to so many people. Before people even know they have a need, they meet that need sometimes. And, and I mean, they just give them themselves. And boy, it's easy to see God in them. But how about a drunk? Is it easy to see God in a drunk? How about a, how about a thief? Can, can you see, uh, readily see God in a thief? Well, well, let's, let's, Ratchet up just a little bit more. How about a murderer? Can, can you look at a murderer and say, man, I can see good there. I can see God in that person. How, how about, how about a prostitute or an adulterer? We mentioned David earlier. How, how about, how about a prostitute or adulterer? Can we see God in them? Or how about a backstabbing liar? Can we see God in them? Well, I, let me just point out each, each one of those I talked about, there's a man or woman of God that God used in amazing ways that was that person. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a thief. He stole his, the birthright from his brother. Moses was a murderer. Rahab, who, who was in the lineage of Jesus, was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. He gets a, a, a double dab there. And, and Peter, when he said to, to, to uh, at Jesus uh, a trial, I, I've never known him. David was, or Peter was a backstabbing liar. See, hope is not something we just embrace for ourselves. That's cool that we can have hope, that, that we can see God and know that we're never alone, that it's, that it's ours. Man, that's, I'm thrilled that we have that. We should take this scripture and run with it. We have hope, we're never alone. But hope is not just something we embrace for ourselves. 
It is something we have in other people. It's something that we offer other people. It's something that we see in other people. Howard Hendricks uh, is a pastor and tells this story about himself. He said when he was in fifth grade, he was going through a very difficult time in life. He said, I was bearing the fruit of a kid who feels insecure, unloved, and pretty angry at life. He said, in other words, I was tearing the place apart. He said, I was, I was terrible at school. I was, I was a menace at school. He said, however, my teacher, Miss Simon, apparently thought I was blind to this problem because she regularly reminded me by saying, Howard, you are the worst behaved child in this school. Hendricks goes on to say, needs to say, fifth grade was probably the worst year of my life. He said, I left fifth grade with the words of Miss Simon ringing in my ear, Howard, you're the worst behaved child in the whole school. So he said, I wasn't excited when, when the bell rang the first day of sixth grade. You can imagine my expectation was going to be another fifth grade repeated again. But I walked in my class and my teacher, Miss No, was there and, and, and she started to take the role. She looked from her book and, and she went down the role calling the name of each student. As she did it, she would look up, see where they were sitting. And some of them obviously knew who they were, some she didn't. And, and it didn't take her long, Hendricks says, it didn't take her long to come to his name. And she, she said this, Howard Hendricks. And then she looked up from her book and sitting at the back was, Howard said, I was there. I had my arms folded across my chest like, like I'm getting ready to, I'm, I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to give you a hard time too. Kind of nodded at her like, yeah, that's me. She said, Howard Hendricks, I've heard a lot about you. Then Hendricks says what she did next literally changed his life, changed the way he saw himself and changed his future. She said, Howard, I've heard a lot about you. But she smiled and said, but I don't believe a word of it. See, See, there's the promise of hope. We can have it in God and we can live it as we show it and demonstrate it to other people. And, and finally, we're going to finish here with just this thought. We're about done. We, we see the second thing there that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, that love always perseveres. We see the practice of perseverance. The, the, word, the word for persevere means endurance or has the idea of standing up under it. It, it. it is the word that the Greeks would have used for a weightlifter who took a heavy weight and pressed it above his head and held the weight above his head. The weight trying to crush him, trying to push him through the floor, trying to destroy him, but holding that weight above his head in during it. When when I was a kid, when I watched the Olympic weightlifters, there, there were some weightlifters that stepped up to that bar, that massive weight, and, and walked away without ever picking it up. I don't know, did they pull a hammy? Did they realize, I can't do this? Did they not feel right? They walked away. Others, others would, would clean it. They'd get it up here and just not have anything left, and they'd throw it down. Others, others would, would get it up here and get part of the way up and realize, hey, I'm not feeling it. It's too heavy and toss it down, but, but sometimes they would get it above their head. Most of the times they get above their head, and they would hold it there and endure. Agape love encourages us to endure, to hold on, to stand up under. And, and can, I, 
can I conclude, can I finish this morning with just two, uh, two encouraging stories about hope and endurance? Uh, a few weeks ago, my friend Kelly, uh, Kelly Kendi, sent me a, a video. It was kind of an interesting video. It was a video clip of Alex Gordon walking, uh, walking through his at-bat in game one of the 2015 World Series. It was the ninth inning. The Royals were down four to three. I believe there were there were two outs, uh, and and he was facing their uh, their the New York Mets closer Familia, uh, and he walks through the the at bat and kind of tells you some stuff that he was thinking and stuff that was going on. And and as I watched the clip, there there, there he took the first pitch and then he he swung and missed at a pitch that was low and outside. And and I swear, uh, Adam, if you're watching at home, you you could agree with me on this. I, if I've watched him do it one time, I've watched Alex Gordon swing and miss at a low outside pitch hundreds and hundreds of times. And as I watched that clip, there was a part of my spirit that went, oh, again, Gordon, why do you chase that? And then I, and then it hit me like, you you idiot. I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. And he describes it. Now, now, he says this next pitch, he tries to quick pitch me. And in doing so, the ball flattened out and went right down the middle. And I knew what happened. He hit, he hit the, the towering home run to deep center field. The Royals came back in extra innings and won the game later on. A few games later, won the World Series. Two Sundays ago, first Sunday we were, uh, were here without you, I went home and my son Caleb and his wife Lori met us at the house. We had had the grandkids that weekend. Uh, probably rule breaking at that time, but uh, but we had them. And that afternoon, we sat down and watched a uh, a basketball game. It had been on earlier in the day, and I taped it. It was the 2008 NCAA basketball championship, KU against Memphis. As as the game got down to the very end, about about a minute to go, just a little less than a minute to go. Uh, KU was down by nine points or ten points, something like that. And I remember my, my blood pressure start. They threw the ball away one time. Someone took a bad shot, and I'm like, why? Because I do that when I watch Askarita. When I watch the KU, I get mad, and I yell at the TV. I'm like, what? And then I realized, I know what's going to happen. They're, they're going to be down three points, and Mario Chalmers is going to hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game. They're going to go back in, in, extra, in overtime and win the game. I knew what was going to happen. Church, can I just remind you of this? Can I give you this one little glimpse of hope, this one little piece to hold on to? We know who wins. We, we may not know how it, how it looks moving forward. We don't, may not know what happens exactly, but in the end, we know who wins. So that's the promise of hope. We, we can have it. We certainly need to be living it, and, and we can persevere. We can hang on. We can hope and hang on. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we pray today that you give us the strength to hope and hang on. We thank you that we have it in you, and Father, we pray that we can live it in our own lives and showing hope in other people and, and hope in you as well. Father, we thank you that we can have encouragement knowing even if we can't figure out what today holds or tomorrow might hold, that we know that you hold tomorrow and that you're in charge. And we know how it all ends. We know that we win. And Father, let us live victorious today 
in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching today. We appreciate you being a part of our service. And don't forget, God is still God, and God is in control. See you next Sunday, Easter morning.